Uh, we will be in the book of Genesis. We've been in the New Testament a lot this year. I preached the gospel of Mark before uh, my sabbatical. And then since I've been back, we've been in the book of Acts. But for four weeks, uh, for Advent Sunday, for the month of December, we're going to look at uh, Christmas in Genesis. So be preparing for that next week. We'll look at Genesis 3 together. But today we're going to finish up Acts chapter 11. And if you were with us last week, we reviewed all of Acts up to chapter 10, considering what the church is supposed to be and to do. I got some good feedback about the sermon this week, as you are all always good to give feedback about the sermon. And I heard several folks, two or three people gave these sentiments. And whenever there are two or three people who have this reaction, I figure there are probably more. And I had a few people say to me, look, this is really good to know what the church is supposed to be and to do. Um, and I'm glad to hear your heart and the leadership's heart for what the church is supposed to be and to do. But I'd really like more you know, personal application for my life or, you know, what is it, you know, if that's what y'all are working on as leadership, that's great. You know, what, how does this affect me every day? And that's a good question. When we come to the word, you should ask how the scripture changes your life every day. And so if I have failed to do so, let me be a little more clear about the church. The church is not the building that we meet in. The church is not a corporation that has certain programs and policies that serve you and you come here as a customer. Um, you are the church, right? I am the church, right? Remember, open the door. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door. Here's all the people. Like the, that's who the church is. It's us. So when we talk about and seeing God's word about what the church is supposed to do and to be, what that means is that's what I'm supposed to be doing, and that's what I'm supposed to be, and that that's what you are supposed to do, and that's what you are supposed to be. You see, this is what we're all called to do together as a church. And what we have here at the end of Acts chapter 11 is a sort of case study of what a particular church, what a particular group of people do as that church is planted and as it begins to grow and to thrive. And so this gives us a very particular, very specific example of what a group of people following Jesus should look like, what I should look like, what you should look like. And so let's take a few minutes to look at this uh, together. I want to read Acts uh, chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, and then I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to notice five things about this church at Antioch in this specific example that we have. And let me just say, you may have heard some of these things before. Because in Acts, these themes keep coming up over and over again. The Bible's pretty consistent about what the people of God are supposed to do and to be. So let's take those as reminders this week and ask God by his spirit if he would apply these things to our hearts. Hear now God's word from Acts chapter 11 beginning in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. 
When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do show us what we are supposed to be and to do as your people. I pray that you would use your word to change our hearts and to change our minds. I pray that we'd be convicted as we see what the church is supposed to be and to do, and that you would lead and guide us so that we would more and more uh, be, uh, that we would live our lives as followers of Jesus. Thank you for showing us what that is. I pray that you would empower us to live in that way. And we ask that you would be willing to do all this, even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, let's notice uh, five things. I'm not going to talk about number five. I'm just going to mention it, okay? So not a lot of time on five, so don't worry about that. We're going to be fine on time today. I'm going to predict unless something crazy happens, we'll be out before 12 noon, all right? So don't worry about time today. But I want us to notice five things about the church at Antioch because it provides a pattern, a picture of what we are supposed to be like as the people of God. So let's look for that here in Acts chapter 11. Number one, notice, wherever they went, they shared the good news about Jesus. Wherever they went, they shared the good news about Jesus. Look at verse 19. Remember, they had been scattered by this persecution in Jerusalem. Remember, the apostles stayed there, but everybody else scattered. We saw back that was when Stephen was killed in Acts 7, the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And remember, Philip goes to Samaria at that time. Well, here we see in verse 19 that there were people who went further than that, further than what Stephen traveled. They went to Phoenicia, to Cyprus, to Antioch. Um, and they were telling the message, spreading the good news of the gospel, at first only to Jews. We'll talk about that in a moment. But then some of them said, hey, we're going to tell everybody this good news about the Lord Jesus. But the thing that strikes me is wherever they went, they told people the good news about Jesus. Now think about this. These are refugees. These are people who are being persecuted. And for what? For being Christians and telling people the good news about Jesus. But wherever they went, they still identified as Christians and told people the good. You know, I think I would have been tempted maybe not to say anything. I just got run out of Jerusalem. I just saw Stephen get killed. I might kind of tone it back a little bit on the Jesus talk. You know, maybe I'd pull back. These people didn't. Look, it says there in verse 26, do you see the end of that verse? That the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. 
that they were called Christians. It was a nickname that people had for them. And of course, you know the rule with nicknames, right? You don't get to pick your own nickname, right? That's the rule of nicknames. Other people give you a nickname, right? If you read the scripture, Christians never use the word Christian. They call each other believers, followers of the way, disciples, brothers and sisters, saints. There are a lot of references. The only time Christians used, Peter uses it later when he's talking about how outsiders view us and how they talk about us. You see, the, the history here is that the people in Antioch who were not Christians first start calling this group of people Christians. They used to just be a part of Judaism, but now we're starting to pe- talk to people who are not Jewish and they're getting converted. And so we have to have a name for them. And they say, well, these Christians, these Christ ones, these ones that are talking about Christ all the time. You see, at this time, proponents of the rule and reign of King Herod were known as Herodians, right? We see them referred to in the scripture sometimes. And so it was natural that when folks heard these people who were proponents of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, that they would be called Christians. And so that's how they got the name, is that this is what they were talking about. And wherever they went, they shared the good news about Jesus. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. Remember, Jesus in Acts 1 and verse 8 had said, You will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And so, our being witnesses is a part of who we are as the church. But Jesus said, We saw last week in Acts 1, that we're to wait until the Holy Spirit fills us. And we've said each week, and I keep repeating this because this is important if you're hesitant, to tell the good news about Jesus, it may be that you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus didn't say, just go out and tell what you've seen and heard. He said, wait in Jerusalem until you're filled with the Spirit, and then you will be my witnesses. The only command was to wait, right? And then they're filled, and then they go out and start saying things like, we can't help but tell people about who Jesus is. They're beaten. We can't help but continue to tell people about you. They're in prison. We can't help but continue to tell people. And we saw a pattern last week that that they would gather together for prayer, and they would gather around the Word, and they would gather together in community. I hate the word fellowship because we've watered it down too much, but they gather together for koinonia, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're scattered back out and are bold witnesses again. Maybe that's what we need, is to gather together for prayer and the word and koinonia so that we're renewed and and we're refilled by the Spirit again so that we can scatter and be witnesses. That's what the church is supposed to do and to be. It's what, what you are supposed to do. It's what I'm supposed to do and to be. So let me just ask us, is this something you're talking about? Are you a proponent of the rule and reign of Christ Jesus so much that someone would say, hey, he's a Christian, he's a Christ one. He talks about that all the time. These groups of people get together, and that's what they're talking about at the table when you walk by. Second question, have you had an experience that you can testify about, right? I mean, that's what these, something happened to these people, and they said, we can't help but to tell about what Jesus has done. Maybe you just haven't, haven't had an experience of that. Maybe you need to wait. You need to call out to God. Remember, we saw last week that the way we're filled with the Holy Spirit is we ask. Luke 11, chapter 11, verse 11, right? And so maybe that's where you are. 
And maybe you need to cry out to God and say, Lord, I need to have an experience. Because I don't, like, it's not hard for me to not talk about you. I haven't had this experience that I want to share with people. Would you give that to me? But if you have, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a proponent of his rule and reign in your life, then it's important that we talk about things. That's who we are, right? So I want us to begin to think about our regular everyday... There is nothing more practical than this. Our regular everyday traffic patterns where we see people over and over again. Co-workers in the office. The person who cuts your hair that you see once a month and you're looking for things to talk about. The place where you buy your groceries. The, the place you go and get coffee. The place that we live and move and have our being. The parents that you sit with in the stands watching your kids at various sporting events or piano concerts or dance recitals. And these you sit in the lobby waiting on your kids to get out and you're around these folks all the time. These are people that we can begin to talk with. And listen, I'm not saying you got to share the whole you know history of the Bible in one sitting, right? What if when somebody said, hey, how was your weekend? What if you said, yeah, I had a pretty good weekend. You know, Saturday, my team, insert team here, won, because that, you know, connects us to the culture. And then, um, and then secondly, you know, I had a great, my family had a great day at church. You know, we sang a song that I really like, or, or, you know, the message was so outstanding, too theoretical, not really applicable to my life, but it was a good, you know, thought experiment to have, to have him go through and to sit through. You know, mention that you go to church. Ask people, how can I pray for you? I mean, that's one that most folks, you'd be surprised what people just open up and say, well, actually, now that you mentioned, I've heard you talk about God. You know, I would love for you to pray for this. I've had people say, ask me to pray for crazy things that I never thought they would open up about, like in a restaurant with all these people around. That's hardly ever offensive to people to just say, hey, you know, how can I pray for you? Who's routinely in your life that you can begin to have these kinds of conversations with? And if you have nothing to share, you don't feel like you have anything to share, ask God for it. Ask him to pour out his spirit and to give you an experience of his love in your heart. We'll talk more about how to have that experience in a minute. But for right now, just notice, wherever they went, they shared the good news about Jesus, and that should be true of us as a church as well. Second, they exercised biblical leadership. Nobody ever wants to talk about this one, right? They exercised biblical leadership. Well, man, we've seen this pattern in Acts, haven't we? In Acts 6, that's the way they overcame problems, was having this group of leaders in the church. And we saw the structure last week in Acts 6, right? When we did our review, there was one group of leaders dedicated to prayer and the ministry of the word. And this second group who does more physical, logistical processes. Now, they do some spiritual stuff too, right? Stephen preaches, Philip, who's also a deacon when he goes to Samaria, is sharing the word with people, right? So so it's okay for that second group to do some of both, but there's one group that is dedicated to prayer and ministry of the Word. So we've seen that structure in the book of Acts, and we learn something more about church leadership here in chapter 11 and verse 22. You see what happens there? Look at verse 22. 
News of this, of what? That these people are not just talking to Jewish folks, but they're starting to talk to Greek people as well. And we'll talk about why that was important in a moment. But just know they were doing something that other folks had not done before, okay? And so news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, why do you think they sent Barnabas to Antioch to check out this new thing that's going on? Why why do you think they did that? Well, you see, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, the apostles, those disciples who had followed Jesus that stayed in Jerusalem, they considered themselves responsible for the direction of the movement of Christianity. So they sent Barnabas out to look and to say, hey, is this something that is, that is of God or is it not? We saw him do the same thing, remember, in Acts 8, when Philip goes to Samaria and these Samaritans are being saved, they sent Peter and John to say, hey, look, go stick your nose in this and see what's going on. And they came back and said, yeah, this is legitimate. They're not doing anything they're not supposed to do. Or think about Acts 11, just earlier in this chapter. Last week, we saw Peter go to Cornelius' house. And then at the beginning of this chapter, Peter comes back to Jerusalem, and look what happens. 11 verse 1, the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Right? They heard what Peter had done. Verse 2, so Peter went up to Jerusalem, and the circumcised believers criticized him. Oh, you don't say. That's not anything new in the church either, right? And they said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And look at verse 4. Does Peter just say, look, I'm an apostle appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I'll do what I want to do, right? It's not what he says. Look at verse 4. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it happened. Now, now, now why does Peter give this explanation? He goes into what we studied last week. You see, even Peter, who is an apostle, considers himself accountable to this group of leaders in Jerusalem. And if Peter, and he needed to be, by the way, if you keep learning about Antioch, Read in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Peter gets off track in Antioch and has to be confronted by Paul, who's also an apostle. And the reason for that is, is what's true of Peter, even after we're filled with the Holy Spirit, is true of all of us. That we are all sinners. That we are all still prone to wander. We sang about it this morning, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We all still have lies that we believe. We all still have ideas that are not true. Sometimes we get off of what is right. We all need to be accountable to someone because we all go astray. Even Peter recognized that. If you're a member of this church, you've taken a vow that that's something you want to be true in your life, right? The the first vow says we acknowledge we're sinners in the sight of God. The third one says we endeavor to live life as becomes a follower of Christ. And the fifth vow is that we submit to the government and discipline of the church. Because we acknowledge we're a sinner and we want to live like Jesus, but we need help doing that. And there are leaders in the church that God has put in place to help us in that way. Now, there's a fuller explanation of that if you come to our new members class. We look at Matthew 18. You should look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 if you want to know more about that. Galatians chapter 6. We look at all those in the new members class. But I have people who come through and say, look, I don't know about this submitting to leadership. 
Because we live in a culture where we want to do what we want to do, and we don't really want to be accountable to anybody. And there are churches you can go to and not be held accountable. And so sometimes people say, hey, look, I don't want to take this fifth vow. I love your music. I love coming to the church. I love Lee Taylor. I love hearing him sing. I love what y'all do. But I'm not sure I want to take that vow. And and the only answer is I just have to tell you, I'm not sure that's an option for Christians. I'm not saying you got to submit to this group of leaders at Redeemer Church of the Shoals. But I don't know that it's an option for followers of Jesus just to say, I'm not going to be accountable to anybody except just the Holy Spirit's going to show me, and that's it. I mean, I hope he does convict you of sin, and I hope there are things. But, man, one place I would go, Hebrews, right? Chapter 13, verse 17. I want to read this to you out of God's Word. This is what it says. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of advantage to no one. So this idea that I say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm just not going to submit to anybody. I'm not going to have a group of people who hold me accountable. I don't think there's a category for that in the scripture. You don't have to submit to this group of leaders, but I think you do need to be accountable to somebody because the scripture, uh, that's the command that we have as followers of Jesus, that we would, be in account- we would be accountable to someone. I want you to know the leaders of this church take that responsibility very seriously. Did you hear what it said here? That, that we keep watch over you as men who must give an account. That, that doesn't just mean at Presbytery quarterly. We have to give an account to God on the last day. For how we shepherded your soul. And we take that very seriously because it is a serious thing. And I think by and large we do a good job of reacting to things. It's our goal to be more proactive and to do more that you would know who a specific shepherding elder is. That is your elder that you go to. And if they speak to you, the session is speaking to you. And if you say something to them, then, then, then that's the way you speak to the session and say things to them. Because we're getting bigger. Everything can't go just through one person. All eight elders can't call you about something, right? And so that's what we're moving to be set up and to be more proactive in that way. And we want, when you take that fifth vow, right, that you submit to the government discipline of the church, that the church government means something and that we're helping you, not just when you're in a crisis, but helping you grow in your faith. Thinking about what is it that keeps you from being all that Jesus wants you to be and helping you overcome those things. Now, a lot of churches won't hold you accountable at all. Right, And there are churches that talk about holding their members accountable. But I want you to hear something else that we see at the church in Antioch. Listen to this. Because you think nobody talks about the other one. Nobody talks about this. Are you ready? Biblical leadership does not just hold church members accountable. It holds church leaders accountable. Right? It's not just there's some people in charge who hold everybody else accountable. That is not the structure within the church. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We saw the example of Peter here. He's still accountable. In Acts 11, he goes back to the church in Jerusalem. In Galatians 2, uh, you know, Paul speaks into his life. It's a really, there's nothing more practical than this. Are you ready? What if I disagree with the decision made by the leadership of the church? Happens every day, right? What if I disagree with the decision made by the leadership of the church? What do I do? 
Well, you can come to the elders. You can appeal there. And if the elders don't see it your way, biblically, the pattern for leadership in the church is that you should have a place to go where you can appeal what the leaders of a particular church do. Did you know that? Look with me at the scripture. I don't want to just make that up. I mean, let's look at the scripture because I think biblical leadership holds church leaders accountable. What does that look like? Just turn with me. I'm turning over to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch. So we're at our church in Antioch. That's our case study. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you can't be saved. Verse 2. This brought them... This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Okay, disagreement in the church. There we go, right? We got it. This brings them into dispute with Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question, right? So there's a dispute in this particular church at Antioch. Paul and Barnabas were on one side, but there's this other group of leaders who have come down from Jerusalem that are saying something different. How do you resolve the dispute? Well, in 21st century America, we get together and have a congregational meeting and vote who's right and who's wrong, and the 42% that are in the minority go out and start another church around the corner, and that's why we have a church on every corner, right? So we do as individualistic Americans... The biblical pattern is there's a place that you go and you appeal, right? We just saw him do that. Look at verse 6. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. There's a group of people who are receiving this dispute. And if you read this, verse 7, after much discussion, Peter gets up and addresses them and tell them about his, tells about his experience and, and with Cornelius and at Cornelius' house. And then Paul and Barnabas stand up and tell what they've been seeing in Antioch and what they've seen God do. Then James, who's a leader in the church in Jerusalem, stands up, <laughs> word of God in hand, right? Quotes the Old Testament scripture, quotes from Amos chapter 9, and says, based on this scripture, this is what we think the right answer is. They write it down in a letter, and they send it back to the church and says, this is the answer to your dispute. This is the answer that you have appealed to us with. Now, that may seem theoretical. Ecclesiology, church government, what should it look like? Listen, there's nothing more practical. If you are visiting and you're looking for a church home, biblically, there should be a place that you can appeal the decision of leaders. And that's rare. I ask my pastor friends, what happens if somebody disagrees with the decision you make? Well, they can go to the you know, governing board. Yeah, all those people you meet with every month and that you're friends with who are probably going to back you. What if they disagree with that? Well, there's really no recourse after that. Well, what about this denomination you're a part of? Or what about, you know, the higher-ups? What about the district superintendent or the, you know, area coordinator? Well, you can go say something. I and mean, he would probably call me lunch with me. But, you know, can he do anything? Can he discipline you? Can he take you out of leadership? No. There is no accountability for church leaders in many, many churches. And I want you to know that's not how we're set up. If you disagree with me, you can always go to the session. If you don't agree with our session, we have a presbytery. The churches of our denomination meet in North Alabama. That will be right here in this room on May the 5th, Cinco de Mayo. I think it's Julie's birthday, so I write that down, right? And so they'll be right here. And so we meet 
quarterly. And that's part of what we do is receive disputes from local churches and help make decisions. And if you don't like the decision they make, there's another general assembly that meets once a year that you can appeal to above that. And that's a more biblical picture of church leadership. So when you're looking for a church, you should be asking that question. What happens if I have a disagreement with the church leadership? Is there a place to go to appeal? Because Antioch in Acts chapter 15 teaches us that there should be one, right? Biblically, that's what it should look like. Now, moving on, right? That's number two. They exercise biblical leadership. That they were held accountable. Who are you accountable to? That the church leaders are held accountable. Are you a member of, are you a part of a church that has a place that you can appeal decisions even made by church leaders? Number three. I didn't see church leadership coming, right? Yeah, it's right there in verse 22, though. You probably saw this one coming. They were a teaching church. They were a learning church. Notice that when they're spreading the good news that great numbers of them, let me get back to Acts 11, a great number of people believed. You see it again in verse 24, a great number of people believed. And so there are all these people who are new believers, right? Different backgrounds, And so what does Barnabas do? He goes and gets Saul, who's a great teacher, who knows the scripture really well. He brings him in, and all who were brought to the Lord are then taught. He and Barnabas teach a great number of people. It repeats that that word, right? That all who had come to Christ were, were taught the truths of Christianity. You see, in Christianity, there is a truth to believe, There are lessons to learn. There is content to communicate. That's why Jesus spends three years teaching a group of 12 men. And one of those falls away, right? (laughs) And, And so he ends up having 11 disciples that he sends out into the world. And the resurrected Christ in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20 Right, he says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, therefore go make disciples of all nations. Well, how do you do that, Jesus? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So Jesus' concept of his church, his people who follow him, is that they would be taught to obey everything that Jesus had commanded. Right, Matthew 28. Then Holy Spirit blows in at Pentecost. All these people are getting saved, and what happens to them? We saw it, Acts 2, verse 42, right? They devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. And here we see a great number of people come to faith, and they say, hey, we're going to have to have some classes because there are all these new believers, and they need to understand the, the truth of Christianity. And so they, Paul and Barnabas teach for a year. Love to be in that Sunday school class, wouldn't you? Wow. Now, listen, I understand that life in the church is more than just understanding a group of propositional truths. I understand that. But I also would argue, and I think it's true, that life in the church is much more than that, but it's certainly not less than that, right? Understanding the word after we become Christians, after we're followers of Jesus, understanding and obeying everything that he commanded, that's the next thing. That, that, that's the basis on which everything else works. That's the beginning. That's the foundation. That's the first step. If you don't learn those things that Jesus commanded, if you don't learn what God's heart is after his word, are you really serving him or are you only serving yourself? 
The only way to know the answer to that is to have the word and to have it confront you in place and say, I'm not sure I like that. And then my life looks more like Jesus as I allow this to speak to me and as I put myself underneath the teaching of God's word. There are many people who don't like teaching these days. There are a lot of churches that don't have Sunday school anymore. They don't have Bible studies. They, they gather together once a week. Right, And people want to have this experience of God. And that's great. You heard me talk about an experience early on. But here's my question. How do you know it's an experience of God? Right? There are a lot of things that can give you an experience. Right? Cocaine will give you an experience you never forget. Right? Demons can give you an experience. That's true. How do you know it's an experience of God? It's got to be consistent with his word, right? And so, yes, I think it's fine to seek an experience. But listen, you will have an experience of God when the truths of this book make their way from your head down into your heart. And that only comes from being still with him and saying, Lord, send your spirit. And I'm reading this chapter. And how does this apply to me and make this true of my heart and life? And it only happens as we gather together in community around the word and around prayer and, yes, around music and eating together and talking with each other and in community with one another. And then we have an experience of God's love for us. Now, if this is the first step, I've got to ask you, are you dedicated to learning? Are you devoted to the apostles' teaching? We're devoted to providing that for you here. Sunday mornings, we have Sunday school for all ages, several classes, one that's going straight through the Bible, another one that's doing foundations of the faith. There's been a young married Sunday school class over here, right? Sunday school will start back soon. There are opportunities for that. Weekly Bible studies, Tuesday morning, there's a group of women that meet up here. Wednesday night, a group of men and a group of women in a Bible study. This is important to us, not just because we want to have programs, But because as we read God's word, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Because as people came to faith, great numbers of people were taught. Because if we don't get this first step right, then how do we know that anything else is right? Are you dedicated to the apostles' teaching? Do you read the word daily? Do you read it in your family? Do you teach your kids? Listen to me. Don't be satisfied with a concert and inspirational thought for an hour one day a week. That's not enough to change your mind and to change your heart and to live in the kind of world we live in as becomes a follower of Christ Jesus. I challenge you. These folks were a learning church. And mark my words, when we stop teaching the word, when we stop learning the truths of the word, we will stop being the church. Number four, they had great community. They had great, you know, I don't like the word fellowship with each other. They had koinonia. I like to use that word because it's stronger, right? Look at this. I've been telling you we would address it. Let me address it now. Verse 19, it says, they only were telling the message to Jewish people. I read one commentator this week. F.F. Bruce was the commentator. He does excellent work. So F.F. Bruce says um, that it didn't. It never occurred to them at first that anybody else would care about the gospel, right? The good news about Jesus. 
because they were all Jewish people who believed that there was one God. They believed the Old Testament, and they believed that he was going to send this Messiah to make all things right. And this group of Jews believed that Jesus was that one that God had sent and had begun that process in his resurrection from the dead of making all things right. That he's ascended into heaven, that he's going to return, all the things we say in the Apostles' Creed, right? And it never occurred to them that somebody who's not Jewish would, would care, right? Because they don't believe there's only one God. They either believe there's no God at all, or more likely at this time, they were polytheistic. They thought there were a bunch of gods. They didn't believe the Old Testament scriptures. They weren't looking for a Messiah to come and make all things right, so they just didn't really think they would care. But then evidently somebody starts reading that Old Testament, and it says in Genesis 3 and in 12 and in 22 that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be a light to the nations, all peoples, right? Isaiah 49 says it. The Psalms talk about it. And so somebody said, hey, wait a minute. Maybe somebody besides just Jewish people would care. That, that Remember we saw last week that they don't have to convert to Judaism in order to be a follower of Jesus. And so they start sharing the gospel with people who are not Greeks. In verse 21, the Lord's hands on them and a great number of people believe and turn to the Lord. These people who aren't even Jewish are becoming Christians. What do they do now? Right? There are all these people who are not at all like them. Don't have a background like them. Don't believe the same things they believe. What do they do? The church was happy to embrace new converts into their community, even though they were very different. Verse 23 says that when Barnabas sees this, look, when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, (laughs) he saw these people who were all different, who believed different things, who were gathering together, who didn't agree on everything, but they agreed on the most important things. And he says, that's evidence of the grace of God. That kind of stuff doesn't happen unless God's blown in by his Holy Spirit, right? You don't see people of different races, people of different economic groups. You don't see people with different colors of skin. You don't see people with all these various differences in their background come together over one similar thing that they have in common. That just doesn't happen. Martha said, that's evidence of God's grace. That's That's God being at work. Because left to our own devices, we want to be around people like us. And he's saying, look, this is evidence of God's grace because we're all saved the same way. We all suffer from the same problem. It may look different outwardly, but we all are in rebellion against God. We want to be our own king. We want to make the rules for ourselves and for our family. Are angry when it doesn't go the way we want it to go. And we all need to bend the knee to King Jesus realizing That he is the king who made all things and therefore can set the rules. But more than that, loves me, forgives me for my rebellion. That even though I deserve to be killed for my treason against his kingship, that he loves me, that he welcomes me. Watch this, that he adopts me into his family and makes me his child. Well, I don't deserve that. And if I don't deserve that, yet I'm here, then I don't have this bar that other people have to meet before they can come into the community because I know I don't deserve to be here, and so you don't earn your way here either. That we all believe that we're here only by the grace of God. 
and that I'm no better than what you are. And that allows people who are very different to come together. That message of grace, that message of the gospel. And when you see different kinds of people coming together, it's evidence of God's grace. Oh, Lord, that you would do that in this place. That God would send his spirit and and, and that Redeemer Church of the Shoals would be characterized in that way. Okay, again, I hear you, right? Very theoretical, right? That's way up here. Let's bring it down to where we live. The only way that happens is if you see that you, and if I see that I am a sinner saved by the grace of God. And that I've done nothing to earn God's merit. Because see, when we start getting exclusive, it's when I think I've done something to earn God's favor, right? Well, at least I don't fill in the blank, right? At least I don't do that. At least I do this thing well. We take pride in that. And the people who do that thing well, then we're willing to be friends with and accept. And the ones who don't, we kind of look down on them. Okay, you can be a part of the fellowship, but we're going to hold you at arm's length, right? The only way this happens is if we see that we're sinners saved by the grace. How does that happen? Again, it's spending time in his word. It's spending time in the fellowship of his people. It's allowing his spirit to do its work in our hearts. We saw in Acts 2.42 that this koinonia included the breaking of bread. That they broke bread and they met in their homes together. That yes, they were around the word, but they prayed with one another. That they shared their stuff with one another. And you see that happen here. That there's a famine and they're willing to sell stuff in order to meet people's needs. Gosh, the temptation to, to, to preach this is to say... Y'all need to do this stuff. But guess what? You can't. The only way this happens is if the Holy Spirit blows in and convicts us of sin and convicts us of self-righteousness and convicts and sees that the only standing we have before God is the finished work of Christ on the cross. Not just something that we, we say, but something that we believe, something that we've experienced, something that we've meditated on, something that's become a deep part of us, and then we can be used in these ways. Oh, Holy Spirit, please blow in and do this in our midst. I told you there was a fifth thing that I'm not going to cover. Just note that in Acts 13 and 14 at Antioch, at this at this church that we're looking at, they send out missionaries, which our church has done some of, and I pray we do more in the future. They plant churches and incidentally put elders in every church that they plant. You can see in 14, down around verse 23. And we pray that God would use us in that way. But let me just close by saying this. We've seen over and over again in the book of Acts what the church is supposed to be and to do. And maybe you're thinking, I'm so glad he's going to be in Genesis next week because he keeps talking about the same thing every week. Be in the Word, be in community, be filled with the Spirit. Well, I keep saying it because the Bible keeps saying it over and over again, that this is what we're supposed to be and to do. And it's what I'm supposed to do individually. It's what you are supposed to do individually. And together we make up this group of people who follow Jesus that is called the church. And so I just want to remind us as we close, as we we leave this portion of Acts, that if you're not involved in telling others the message of the good news of Jesus... 
then we're not functioning like the church and we're missing out on the joy it brings to see people's lives changed. I want to remind us that if we don't choose to place ourselves under biblical leadership, members and leaders alike, then we are not functioning like the church. And we're missing out on the joy that comes from walking this journey with a shepherd who loves us and guides us. I want to remind us that if we're not involved in learning more about God through his word, then we are not functioning like the church. And we're missing out on that joy that comes from the fruit of studying God's word. Word of knowing him better, of meeting him in that place, and having that truth in our heads become a fire in our hearts. And if we're not plugged into real community, where people worship with one another and pray with one another and share our lives with one another and share our stuff with one another, even though we may be very different, even though we don't agree on everything, if we agree on the most important things, and we don't gather to worship and pray and to share our stuff and to share our lives, then we're not functioning like the church. And we're missing out on that joy that comes from real gospel community. All that the church would be the church. Lord, please make it so. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Heavenly Father, No group of leaders can make this happen. No group of individuals can just decide of our own will that we're going to be this way. It's our flesh. Father, when we're honest, we realize that we're bankrupt, that we have nothing to give, that even our attempts at competency is nothing more than confidence in ourselves instead of looking to you. Father, forgive us. I just pray that you would make your word so real that, we, that, the, that the kingship of King Jesus, who rightfully deserves to squash me as someone who's committed treason, loves me and welcomes me into his kingdom and indeed into his family so that I'm his younger brother, so that I rule with him and reign with him. Oh, make that truth real in our lives. And as that happens, Father, I just pray that we can't help but tell people about it. If folks beat us, if folks imprison us, we still can't help telling people about what King Jesus has done for us. Give us good leadership. Yes, we need to train leadership. We need to emphasize leadership. But, Father, we can't make leaders. Only you can. Please raise up leaders in this church. Raise up leaders in our homes that lead our homes the way that you would have them be led according to your word. Make us students of your word. Give us a hunger for your word. Father, no preacher can make us hunger for your word. We hunger for lunch and want to leave. Only your spirit can give us a hunger for your word. Holy Spirit, please come and give us spiritual appetites. And Father, I pray for our community. I pray that you would help us to see how we've received your grace and it's the only reason we're here. So that we are slow to judge other people. So that we are quick to include people. 
because we've done nothing to earn your favor. So there's nothing that they can do either. Please make us that kind of community. Please come and do that for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.